this escalating feud between the president and his own Justice Department. The Nunes memo. The Nunes memo. The Nunes memo was written for the purpose of, of trashing uh, the FBI and the Department of Justice. Undermining the judiciary and undermining the apparatus of government. Oh, but did we catch them in the act or what? You know what I'm talking Oh, did we catch them in the act? They are very embarrassed. They never thought they were going to get caught. We caught them. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Look, Heather, we need to talk about the Nunes memo and everything around it. It's the center of a very large, confusing storm. But let's first state clearly what's going on here. We're dealing with something of utmost seriousness. Rule of law, that key three-word phrase upon which everything rests. Trump has attacked the FBI and the Justice Department, calling them disgraceful, saying they should be ashamed. But I think it's a disgrace what's happening in our country. And when you look at that and you see that and so many other things, what's going on, a lot of people should be ashamed of themselves and much worse than that. That's after he balked at the request of his hand-picked FBI director, Christopher Wray, who said, don't release the memo. He all but pleaded. Deputy Director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, was pushed out. And President Trump threatens regularly, almost hourly, to fire Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who, of course, is the person who would have to get rid of Bob Mueller if that moment ever arrived. So let's get to the man of this season, of this year, Special Counsel Mueller, slightly removed and protected at least while Rosenstein stays put as deputy attorney general. He's investigating Trump's 2016 campaign ties to Russia and Trump's possible obstruction of justice in 2017. Trump and the GOP can't decide if the Nunes memo is or is not about the Mueller investigation. I mean, that's what makes this whole thing even worse. Congressional Republicans don't know which side they ought to be on, which side their college professors would tell them to be on. What they seem to agree upon only is they will not fight Donald Trump, period, paragraph. They will not stand up for the independence and the principle of rule of law. Heather, how seriously are you taking this every day and every night as you sit up late? Oh, I'm taking it incredibly seriously. But let me just say, you know, I, I think when I talk to people that the whole fight over the FISA court and Nunes and who Rosenstein is and all that gets really confusing for most people. Yeah. And for me, the breaking moment was not the release of the memo. The breaking moment was on Monday when the president was supposed to put in place sanctions on Russia, according to Congress, which passed a law overwhelmingly. There were only five votes against it in both the House and the Senate. Everybody said you have to put sanctions on Russia. And he simply said, we don't need them. I'm not going to do it. And this to me was terrifying, a terrifying breakdown of the president saying to Congress, which is the body that makes our laws, I don't care what you think we need for laws. I disagree, so I'm not going to do it. That was huge. I mean, that was huge. I, I freaked out over that one. And then coming up to the Nunes memo, I was very frightened because everything I had read about it suggested there was going to be enough material in it to sort of cover people's backsides when it came time to do some firings, Rosenstein, Mueller, people who were involved, to say the FBI and the Department of Justice were just wrong on this one. They were corrupt. There's enough coverage that we're okay. 
And then the thing came out. And I was like, seriously? Seriously? I wasted five days of my life worrying <laughs> about this because it's badly written. It's contradictory. In fact, there's nothing here we didn't know. This is, doesn't cover anybody's tushy at all, let me tell you. Yeah, it's exposed some. That's... That's a very good sign. You know, if that's the best they could do, and they certainly put an awful lot of chips down on that memo, and it was a complete dud, if that's the best they got when we know how much stuff Mueller has, I'm feeling better about this than I would have been if we had been recording this before the memo came out and there was pushback against it. Very nice framing of that memo. I, I think you're right. People looked at it and said, huh? Now, all the fuss over this... And they started to back away in a kind of confusion, I think. I mean, I'm not going to say anything, but I'm not going to get too close to this. I mean, they had to read this memo, and how could they not know that that this is a nothing burger? Do you know, I, that's exactly what I called it. And I kept I kept scrolling down going, where are the rest of the pages? <laughs> right. Where's the important stuff? <laughs> is and I'm this thinking, going to a jump in the times? Yeah. <laughs> Am I missing a page? Literally, I thought I must be clicking on the wrong thing because surely they wouldn't have released this and said it was anything. In fact, I came to believe that they didn't intend to release it at all. They intended just to say, oh, we got this big thing. And they made the mistake of getting caught in having to release it and of having the president who possibly didn't even read it thinking that it was going to end the Russia investigation and it doesn't do anything well, like that. Well, it shows we're severed from not only democratic norms but basic standards of empiricism and, and reason and anything resembling evidence. So let's like let's bring on our guests this week. We've got a nice pair. Uh, welcome Jonathan Rausch and Benjamin Wittes, uh, they co-wrote an extraordinary piece in this March issue of The Atlantic called Boycott the Republican Party. Uh, Jonathan is a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. And Benjamin Wittes is editor-in-chief of Lawfare and senior fellow at Brookings as well. Welcome, Ben. Happy to be here. So let me first place you Two, both in the firmament. You are libertarian. Some people would call you conservative. Certainly nonpartisan, and you've worked hard at being nonpartisan. So, describe first your political standing. I think that informs what we're about to talk about. Jonathan, why don't you let her rip? Well, I've been called some of some of everything. I'm probably center right. I'm a kind of Burkean conservatism, conservative. I. I believe in respect for tradition and incrementalism. I have libertarian leanings. One thing I'm definitely not is a progressive Democrat, and I've spent my career now of 37 years in journalism being very careful not to express any partisan leanings at all and to, and, and to try to actually be nonpartisan because I believe, as the late Christopher Hitchens said, that partisanship makes you stupid. Well, that's that sizes it up very nicely, Jonathan. Benjamin, uh, place yourself. So in some ways, my sensibility is similar to Jonathan's, except that I'm very much not a libertarian. Um, I am sort of politically eclectic. I, I wrote editorials for the Washington Post. I have liberal streaks and conservative streaks. I, uh, I guess, though, two of the things that I'm most known for are... One, I I defended a whole lot of Bush-appointed judges that a lot of liberals found very objectionable, both to the Supreme Courts and the lower courts. 
Um, more recently, I've you know spent most of my recent career on on matters related to national security law part of a group of people around lawfare who were kind of thought of as the sort of respectable right of center end of a lot of political debates, particularly about things like drone strikes and surveillance. Let us pivot back to the Nunes memo for a minute. Now, this may be old news a couple weeks from now, but what I found fascinating by that is is the confluence of the two key realms of society, states, if you will, that Trump attacks right off the bat, arriving in office, which, of course, authoritarians in the making do, too, the judiciary and the press. And those two entities weave together in that Nunes memo. He's triangulating with all sorts of diabolical intensity. And the memo, as a reporter who's received documents like that, you know, classified documents, I had 19,000 documents for one of my books, some classified. I just watched that and said, my God, you know, he's spinning the process in so many ways with such complex intent. Now, ham-handedly, ultimately comes back and bites him. But then again, I'm saying it seems like none of this seems to matter to the people who support this man. Let's talk about this Nunes explosion at, at this point. And what it says to the two of you? I mean, I, I think the most important element of the Nunes memo is not anything that's in the memo. It's the fact that the memo exists at all. So in the wake of Watergate, the intelligence community and the broader executive branch and Congress reached a kind of grand bargain as to how we were going to prevent things like Watergate and things like the intelligence abuses of the civil rights era and Vietnam era from happening again. And the grand bargain worked something like this, at least the congressional side of it. Congress would set up these highly secure oversight environments where the intelligence community could actually give up their deepest, darkest secrets, and congressmen could supervise and verify that the programs were being conducted in a fashion that comported with the law. And the second was that the environment would be secure, that it would be actually safe for things like intelligence sources and methods to talk about them with members of Congress in these environments. Now, what Nunes did is a profound betrayal of both of those premises. And it's the first time this has ever happened in the, in the 40 years of the grand bargain. The Intelligence Committee chairman, with the active involvement of the President of the United States, blew an intelligence source, publicly disclosed an intelligence source and subjected him to ridicule, publicly disclosed the target of a FISA warrant, and publicly disclosed material that constituted the contents of a FISA application, and did that all in order not to validate or not to explain the behavior of the intelligence community, but rather to lie about it. You write about this extraordinary position we find ourselves in as we watch the Trump administration pressure law enforcement leaders on investigative matters, and I read, interfere with investigations that implicate Trump's personal interests and threaten individuals who run the department that serves beneath him. And beyond that, attacks federal judges, pardons a sheriff convicted of defying a court order to enforce constitutional rights. 
you know, we are seeing a siege on the foundations of rule of law in the United States. Yeah, I mean, we have developed a set of expectations that law enforcement, and for that matter, intelligence, is something a little bit more elevated than simply an expression of the crudest forms of political power. That is, you know, when Jimmy Carter gets elected, he doesn't loose the FBI on Republicans, right? And when Ronald Reagan gets elected, that doesn't mean a whole lot of Democrats are getting indicted. And Donald Trump is the first president in any of our lifetimes who doesn't even pay lip service to that value. You know, and his, his open premise is that law enforcement under a Donald Trump should be a vehicle through which his political enemies get investigated and his political friends get protected. And that is a, a just mammoth change in our normative expectations of the way the presidency interacts with law enforcement, what it wants from law enforcement, and a lot of things flow from that, like asking the FBI director, hey, could you, could you drop this investigation of, of my national security advisor? Like saying to the FBI director, hey, can you uh, issue a statement that I'm not under investigation? Like firing the FBI director when he doesn't do those things, and like menacing the attorney general, the deputy attorney general, and the special counsel on a regular basis, as well as tweeting about the deputy FBI director and FBI general counsel in really insulting terms. And these are new events in American history. We don't really have anything recent has analog for them. Heather, we have a great historian here, which is a great advantage for we journalists. Uh, Heather, have ever before we seen a president weaponize the enforcement and prosecution arms of the government in this way? Well, no. We had somebody try it before in the middle of the 19th century, and that was Andrew Johnson. But we are absolutely in a new moment. And I wonder if that new moment is worth shedding a little bit more light on. The thing that jumped out to me about your piece, gentlemen, is that while everybody is focusing on the Nunes memo and on the things that Donald Trump is tweeting and Donald Trump is doing, what your uh, piece does is it pulls together a new sentiment that I've seen around after the backlash with the Nunes memo, and that's saying, listen, this is not just Donald Trump. This is the entire Republican Party. They own him at this point, and we have to punish them as a group, as a party, rather than simply punishing Trump. And this struck me as being a really new moment in American political discourse anyway, and certainly a moment, a new moment in the Republican Party. And I wonder if you, let's start with Jonathan, would like to talk about just the degree to which the congressional Republicans are complicit in what's going on in D.C. and where we should go from here. Heather, I wish it were just the congressional Republicans. It's certainly the House Republicans. It's about half of the Senate Republicans. Most important, it's the Republican base, 80% of which consistently lines up behind Trump, no matter what he does. He said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and retain their support, and apparently that is the case. What we've learned through, for example, the nomination of Roy Moore, a proudly lawless candidate to be the Senate candidate in Alabama, 
and through the Nunes memo, where you saw the House line up to politicize the intelligence world, and in multiple other instances, is that the Republican Party is no longer committed in a serious right to the rule of law and is willing to undermine it. Trump is, of course, a driver of that, but he's also a symptom of it. And if he went away tomorrow, it's quite possible this behavior would continue. And that's, to me, the critical takeaway of our article is it's not enough just to, you know, if you could impeach Trump, it's not enough to just do that. You need a firm political statement from the American public that a party that behaves this way will be isolated from power, preferably at every level of government. What stands in the way of this happening in this midterm election, this thing that you just said? The whole party needs to be punished. And I understand your position, and I think you're, you're on the money, as Heather points out, to say it is a party, both owned by Trump and owning him both symptom and cause, (laughs) that must feel a powerful correction in all the ways that matter in politics. You're out of power. You don't have a job anymore. And if you want to be a participant in the American political system, you must appear now as a different party. How does that happen? What stands in the way of that correction occurring in 2018? Well, it's of course, all a question of where the votes are, right? There are three possible outcomes in 2018, not just two. One outcome is that progressive Democrats go to the polls in large numbers, but minorities kind of are under-motivated, stay home, and are in the wrong places geographically. And Republicans manage to pull out control of the House or the Senate. That would not be any kind of punishment at all. The second possible outcome is that Democrats win one or both chambers in a squeaker. Well, that would help at the institution level because that would create some important checks and balances in Congress. But it wouldn't do the job of telling the Republicans, don't even think about doing this, because then you'd just set off arguments that would go on for two more years about whose fault it was. The third outcome is the really hard one. And that's the giant wave election. It costs Republican seats at every level of government. It costs them not only Congress, but they lose state houses. They lose governorships. They get a clear, unambiguous statement from the American people, cut it out. What stands between us and that is just a question of numbers, Ron. I don't have a prediction for you. It's possible. We saw it in Virginia. We saw it in New Jersey in November. Uh, we might see it nationally. You point that out in Virginia. It's in your piece. And I say, look at that. How does that then transfer, widen uh, to the country? Heather? That that does raise the question of how you move that needle. You know, there's a lot of mechanisms in place that make the voting look uh, like there's going to have to be work done before 2018, voter suppression, gerrymandering, all that sort of thing. But simply waiting to see what happens in 2018 seems like a very long time for a lot of people. Many folks are focused on Mueller's investigation and putting an awful lot of faith in it. Um, Do you think, Ben, that a lot of people are hoping that he's the cure-all? And I'm actually quite worried about that. It seems to me that putting the faith in our faith in the existence of American democracy in one man is really a risky thing. What do you think about that? I very much agree with you. So, and I, but I think you're understating the case. So, it's not just putting your faith in one man. It's putting your faith in one man who is a criminal investigator. And, you know, in my opinion, the threat to the rule of law 
is only marginally less if no crimes were committed than if a lot of crimes were committed, because the threat emanates from the president's behavior toward law enforcement. And we sort of know what that looks like, right? And so what if Bob Mueller's investigation chugs along and uh, there's no case to bring at the end of the day? And we've put a huge amount of political hope for the sort of salvation of all kinds of things that we believe in, in the outcome of that investigation. That's not a good outcome. And, you know, a prosecutor can, can bring cases. He can tell you what the truth is about matters that are within his jurisdiction to investigate. But he can't make a society function like a democracy that doesn't want to. Give, tell me where our logical out is here. Like, If, in fact, American democracy is a workable system, then how do you get people to reorient themselves around the rule of law in an effective manner before the next election? I mean, what does it? Talking a lot? We have examples now. Hungary, Poland, Venezuela. We know how democracies go. Turkey, it's not right away. It's a diminution of important democracies norms. It's authoritarian leaders who give away goodies to elites in exchange for their support. The elites assume they can control the authoritarian. Oops, that never works. We're seeing those patterns of behavior in the United States, and we're seeing the Republican Party start to look a little bit like the Fidesz Party in Hungary or the Peace Party in Poland, that is to say an authoritarian populist party. The founders were terribly worried about this problem. They all told us, Adams, Jefferson, Washington, Madison, Hamilton, they all told us the safeguard of democracy is not the printed word on the page. It's not the election. It's civic virtue, Republican virtue in the hearts of the people. If you lose that, you're sunk. And that's, that's where we are now. We're testing that proposition. We are at a moment when the rule of law is breaking down. But in your article, you suggest that the way to recover that rule of law is simply to have everybody vote for the Democrats, which, again, coming out of your mouths is kind of a real surprise. And, and it's something that's going to make people sit up and take notice. But the argument for the complete abandonment of the Republican Party seems to me sort of extreme. That is, lots of people don't want to vote for the Democrats at all. So what are you going to say to them? And why not simply try and reform from the inside? I mean, can you talk us a little bit through why you think this is your solution to what's happening with the breakdown of the rule of law? This is a council of desperation for us. Uh, we are both people who until now would have said, of course, we will work with and support those forces within the Republican Party that want to reform and reconstitute it. We're all for that. But in our separate paths and then together, we both concluded that it is now clear that those forces are locked out of the cockpit and are effectively helpless to do anything but maybe put some speed bumps in the road. I think we saw that with the Nunes memo. There was really, there were, there were Republicans who were appalled at what was going on there, but they were helpless to do anything about it. Uh, that means that the constraints have got to come from the American people. And in a two-party system, if you want one party to lose power, that means you have to vote against it. So that's what we think it's come to. 
Ben, let me ask you a question. You did an extraordinary thing with a, a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request, uh, that got you a trove of documents from the FBI of how folks reacted when Jim Comey was fired. Obviously, the White House said, oh, people were celebrating the firing of Comey inside of FBI. People said, are you kidding? But nonetheless, you proved otherwise, and you've got enormous expertise on both FBI and justice. What's going to happen if Trump fires Mueller? Well, I, first of all, don't think Trump can so easily fire Mueller. And the reason is that under the regulation in which Mueller was appointed, the only person who can actually fire him is Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, for technical reasons that are uh, not worth going into. So the mechanism by which you would have to fire... Who Trump is threatening to fire. (laughs) Right. So the mechanism by which you would have to fire Mueller is to order Rod Rosenstein to fire him. If Rod Rosenstein refused, you could fire Rod Rosenstein. And then his place would be taken by a woman named Rachel Brand, and you could order her to do it, and she could either do it or get fired. And if that sounds familiar, it's... Saturday Night Massacre style. (laughs) Go down the ranks. We saw this movie once before. Right. Right. And one of the things about replaying the same movie is that everybody knows who the good guys were in the first movie. And, you know, the structure of that deterrence may be relatively stable. Um, The president clearly isn't very fond of Rod Rosenstein, but he can't seem to quite muster the will or energy to get rid of him either. And so I think there's a, there's a, 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 a stability there that may have legs. Uh, that said, look, if the president were to fire Bob Mueller, the real relevant question is how much do people in Congress care? And if the answer to that is not enough to do anything about it, then then that is a cataclysmic moment. And if the answer is they care enough to do something about it, then the question is what do they care enough to do? And how quickly can they muster how a voting majority in both houses of Congress to do something about it and what. And I don't think we'll know what that looks like until the day it happens. Uh, let me thank both of you. Uh, we've got two terrific guests here, uh, Jonathan Rausch and Ben Wittes. They wrote this piece, Boycott the Republican Party in the March issue of The Atlantic. Uh, Jonathan, a contributing editor at The Atlantic, senior fellow at Brookings. Thank you. Thank you. And Ben, editor-in-chief of Lawfare, as in Warfare, and senior fellow at Brookings. Uh, Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Heather, stand by. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. You know, Heather, talking to Ben and Jonathan, you know, this seems unprecedented to me. I, I, you know, I think they're right about that, and I think they frame this thing with great precision. But I do think of J. Edgar Hoover. Anytime you mention the FBI and his overreach and those famous Hoover files that he used as really blackmail on much of the power structure of the United States across what forty, fifty years. Forty-eight. He was in office forty-eight years. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Hoover and even things like Joe McCarthy. We've had some tough times. 
Well, so one of the, there's a couple of things that I thought were really interesting about what they said. And the first is, yes, this is absolutely unprecedented. But one of the things that I was really pushing there was that this attack uh, with the Nunes memo on the Department of Justice, on the FBI, those are attacks on the instruments of the state. And those often backfire. And what has fascinated me about the reaction to the Nunes memo is it does seem like it has backfired, that people are starting to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, we can't have this happen. And I, and even the entire Republican Party is, impl- in, is complicit in this, and we have to back them off against their attacks on our government. And when I think about that, what really comes to mind or came to mind absolutely first was Joe McCarthy. Because when Joe McCarthy starts attacking people in 1950, people think it's 1953, it's actually 1950, he goes after Truman's State Department. And lots of people are like, oh, well, that's cool. We don't like the Democrats and, anyway. And says it's, it's infiltrated with communists. Yes, so infiltrated with communists. He actually is he's running for re-election. He doesn't really have a topic. So he reaches into his – he's actually speaking to a group of women in West Virginia. And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a list and he says, I have a list here. Of and he comes up with a number that which changes over time, of communists in the State Department. And he doesn't have anything. I mean, for all we know, it's a Chinese restaurant menu. I mean, he doesn't. <laughs> but so he says that, and it takes off. Yeah. And then, um, th- so so he goes after Truman's State Department, and that's he's a Republican and Truman's a Democrat, and so lots of Republicans are willing to let this go. But then he starts up again after Eisenhower is elected, and Eisenhower is a Republican. And once again, he goes after the State Department. It worked before, right? He'll do it again. And Eisenhower's pissed off. But he's like, I don't want to get in the gutter with this guy. And people are kind of getting on board because the newspapers are getting on board. It's a great story, you know, the whole thing. And then McCarthy goes after the army. And he goes after it for really stupid personal reasons. The famous Army McCarthy hearings. And they're televised. And this is in 1954 that they become televised. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? I know this hurts you, Mr. Wells. Mr. McCarthy, I will not discuss this further with you. What's fascinating about that is that, you know, it was one thing when he went after the State Department. No one knows what the State Department does. It's one thing when he goes after a Democrat. But keep your hands off my army. So that, that ends McCarthy. But what's interesting to me about this attack on the Department of Justice and the FBI is that the FBI has always been uh, really defended by the right in America, not by the left. It is in our system the piece that really tends to be supported by the right. And in part because of what uh, Ben and Jonathan were saying, you know, in the 1960s and into the 1970s, the FBI tends to go after people on the left. It tends to go after Martin Luther King Jr. And so the left really comes down and complains about the FBI all the time, and the right defends it. For Trump and Nunes and the the Republicans who are on board with that now going after the FBI, uh, you know, I think the fact that there has been such a switch over this Nunes memo is in part because of overreach. You know, yeah. go after the Democrats. We don't like them. Go after, you know, pick a group that we don't like. But don't go after my army and don't go after my FBI. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It was so interesting to watch. It is that thing you mentioned. The FBI. Huh? What? Well, you know, um, uh, the hard lessons of history, Heather, as you know so well, being really such a great not only scholar but explainer of history 
is that it seems like only horrific crisis with real destruction seems to remind people of why democracy is so precious. So, on that note, Heather, thank you. On that cheery note, it's always a pleasure, Ron. Uh, My pleasure indeed. Uh, I'm Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On. See you next time. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FreakOutCarryOn. Visit our website at WBUR.org slash FreakOut. Our email address is FreakOutAndCarryOn at WBUR.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.